Not quite sure which episode it was, but my wife and I had found ourselves watching a series called Fringe. It was one based on like fringe science and stuff and put it all together in kind of the sci-fi weird uh, world. And we were watching one of the episodes in which this man would walk down the street and go in different places and he would soak in the electricity in, in that particular location and it would go break, make him go mad or something and he'd end up like in the darkness killing somebody. It was like this really weird one. It, creepy enough for my wife and I that is like just a, just a step over like, ah, we don't like that one. That's a little creepy. And so as we were watching it, it's kind of like, ah, maybe, okay, we'll, we'll finish it. We finished it or maybe it was like halfway through, but I got a call. Something was going on at the church. I had to come out here and come uh, check something out. Maybe the alarm went off or something. Can't quite remember the exact reasons, but I got in my car. I started driving down the street over here in, in Sycamore Creek and I'm about halfway down the street when suddenly the entire neighborhood just goes, power's gone. Right? And I like could count backwards from 10. And it was like 10, 9. Immediately, my wife calls me, boom, Greg, I am so freaked. It's like it was just enough to be freaked out that we were watching some guy suck electricity out of stuff, and suddenly it goes that way. And the um, funny thing is that she called me in her fear. She called me in her discomfort. She called me in those cases because I'm her husband. And what's interesting is if, if you're into ever doing anything in the dark, and I don't know if, you, if you're like me, like I'll walk through um, my bedroom at night in the dark without opening my eyes just because I'm like, I don't want to turn a light on. I don't even want to open my eyes. I'm so tired. And I've learned to navigate my room without any problem. Anybody else able to do some of that, right? Then we did new flooring and that, that went bad. I just hit my head a couple of times. It was, it was awful. And the reason why it was awful is it wasn't familiar. The reason my wife called me in the middle of the dark is because I'm familiar. You see, whenever you enter into dark times, Whenever you or I walk into a situation which we're not sure what in the world God is doing, what in the world is happening, why is this going on, you and I will have a tendency to reach out to that which is most familiar. You will reach out to that which you understand and grasp and so that you can orient your life. In fact, what's interesting is many of us reach out to things that we are used to and are familiar with because they've already given us a promise that we'll lean on. I'll give you a few examples. Maybe you've lost your job, and instead of finding yourself calling to your friends or telling somebody, you've you've, you've found your way back into drinking because you know it'll anesthetize the pain. Maybe some of you are running to shout about stuff on Facebook because you already know you're going to get the likes and everybody to back you when you when you get angry about whatever scenario has occurred in your life that you're not clear about. Maybe, maybe somebody has died in your life. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it was somebody that you deeply loved and they just died unexpectedly and now you don't know where to turn. You, you may lament to family. You may just, but nothing is familiar enough anymore that you can reach out. I hope that as Christians, we in the room who call ourselves Christ followers would see where we're reaching out to. And that I hope that you know that God's promises are solid enough that you can reach out to them. And maybe you're not a Christian. I want you to consider that maybe in the darkest times, it's the sure footing of God's promises that, that we should really step into. And that's kind of where we're looking at in this series. God's promises are the only sure footing in the dark times. Now, that doesn't take away the difficulty of the dark times. That's going to give you answers to what is God doing. But it is the sure footing of his promises that enable you to move forward in the darkest hours, in the worst situations. And I know this because over and over and over again, in the darkest hours of the people of Israel and the Bible, they went back to the promises that God had given them. So they were a people born of a promise. They were a people born from a promise. The 
world was made, Adam and Eve had come, they'd fallen, the mankind had fallen into sin, rebellion, selfishness, and following with the demonic world and the, the dark powers together, they went into rebellion against God. And God kind of said, I'm done with you guys, and kind of allowed the nations to be taken by the powers of the world. But he says, I'm, I want one nation that's mine, and I'm going to save the world through it. And so he picked a man named Abram. And as he chose Abram, he turned to Abram and, and he gave him a promise. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. And he worked with Abram as he was faithless and faithless and faithless until his faith grew. And then one day he was trusting God. And that certain occasion, God, the word of God showed up to Abram, stepped out to Abram, looked at Abram and said, um, I'm going um, to make you into a great nation. I know he was complaining about his heir. And he's like, no, no, no. You understand, I'm going to give you an heir. In fact, look at the stars. Your, your children and your grandchildren, the, the, those who come after you are going to be like these stars in the heavens. And it says that Abram looked at the stars and he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And then Abram kind of looked at it and said, this is awesome. Now, now explain how I can be sure you're going to do this. And he says, okay, here's what I'll do. And he, and he took out and cut all these animals in halves. And God began to walk down the center of those cut animals. And the picture of that is God saying, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm making you such a solemn promise that if this doesn't happen, I should be as these animals are chopped in half. And so Abram's like, this, this is amazing. And, and God spoke to Abram these words, a promise. He says, no, for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. There'll be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's a long time. So grab that time frame in your head for a minute, because we're going to see it in a minute. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God has a reason for why he hasn't given Abram the entire inheritance and all these things. So you have these Israelites now who have a promise given to God, because from Abram will come Isaac and Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob will be renamed Israel. He will wrestle with God. He will have 12 sons and just this, or a massive, I think it's, three, it's just a bunch of kids, okay? It's just like all kinds of children. The 12 of them are known as the patriarchs. But in this group, he ends up forming what we know as the nation of Israel. Now, that's what will happen. That's the promise of where it will go. But in the meantime, they find themselves stuck in a nation that isn't their own. It's called Egypt. Now, we've all heard of Egypt, right? Land of the Sphinx, big old pyramids of Giza, lots and lots of sand, right? The Nile is, is the fertile region of the area. And that is where we find our people, the Israelites, the Hebrews also, as they're called, in Exodus down in Egypt. So if you've got your Bible, grab it. And you can, we're going to begin our journey in the book of Exodus in chapter 1. And we're going to kind of move forward from here. But it was important for me to give you that promise because this is what's going to sit behind this extremely dark, difficult hour that Israel is going to be going through. But it starts off pretty good, actually. And Tim, pick it up. As good stories should, they start like in Hobbiton, where all the hobbits are happy and everybody's bouncing around. So here we go. Verse 1. In, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. 
all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. We'll get to Joseph in a minute, but just know everybody who is part of Jacob's family, part of Israel, is now in Egypt. Nobody's left behind in the land of Canaan. They are now, up, which is where modern-day Israel would be. They are down in Egypt. And so now they are living in this place, and Joseph dies, and his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful. Note that word. In fact, you can even underline it. It's okay even if it's not your Bible and it's a Bible out there, whether you got it at home or, or outside. Just take that word. Notice, they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, another word you want to mark and notice, and they grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them. Now, all this language, if you've been with us for the last series, should really kind of be like, I've heard that before, fruitful and multiplied, fruitful and multiplied. Yes, because this is what's called the cultural mandate. It's the blessing that God gave Adam and Eve when he created them. He said, listen, here's what I want from you. Genesis 128, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice some of the words in here. God wanted and intended humanity to spread and grow a dominion, a kingdom, a rulership. This was God's intentional way of forming his kingdom. When he made Adam and Eve, the creator God said, I want my kingdom, I want my rule, I want my loving leadership over you to spread to all humanity. And so when you guys get married and you have children, you train your children up in me and then they'll get married and they'll have children on and on and on spread out through all of humanity. That was the initial way that the kingdom of God, as we would call it, would spread. In fact, it was so important the many of the rabbis viewed this as, uh, as a, like a law, that if you broke this, you broke the fundamental law of creation. You were supposed to get married, have children, and, and grow these families. Now, that's changed in the church. We don't agree with that. But the bottom line is this is definitely a multiplication scheme, and Israel is doing it. Israel is blessed. They are multiplying. They are spreading. They're developing. And in a way, what God is saying, what the author Moses is saying in this is, listen, Israel is spreading the kingdom. They are my kingdom. I'm blessing them like my kingdom. And uh, that means there's going to be a reaction. There's going to be a hard reaction because there are forces, a rebellion in this world that we have been a part of, or maybe we are a part of, that joins with the dark forces against our creator and his rule over us. And suddenly that's going to have a reaction. But before I move on into the reaction portion, I want to show you a parallel. A lot of us read Exodus and we don't see the, the parallel of, of multiplication. But what's interesting about this is this is how God decided to spread his kingdom, right? We got that part? That's easy? Well, that kingdom would spread. In fact, Israel will, through the story of Exodus, go into the promised land, retain the promised land. They will build a kingdom there, but they will not stay faithful to their God. They won't stay faithful to Yahweh. They won't stay faithful to the creator God. They reject him for Baal. They reject him for Astroth. They reject him for all other gods. And God splits them in half and does all kinds of things. Finally, exiles them into the nations. In other words, he says, you want to live with the nation's gods so much? Go be with the nation's gods. Have fun. As he kicks them out, they repent. And finally, he brings them back in. And in that time period, when he brings them back in, a promise that has been trickling through every page of the Bible practically starts to come to fruition where he's saying, listen, there's coming a king. There's coming a king. There's coming a savior. There's coming one who will set you free from this rebellion. And that one is Jesus. See, when we talk about Jesus Christ, it's not his last name. We all got that one, right? It's not um, that Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It means the anointed king. 
And so when you talk about Jesus, he is the anointed king of what? Well, the king of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And what he is, is this promised one who has stepped up and he has won a great victory by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. He destroyed the rebellion, which two weapons was to cause humanity to sin and be rejected by God and two, to die. And now that he had conquered death and he dealt with sin, the two weapons of the enemy were gone. And now we were right with God, able to be in his kingdom. And this is the picture of the, of the whole story. Now, Jesus rises from the dead, but he doesn't just go like, no, I'm going to run around and tell everybody. He says, no, I am now sending my emissaries. You, you know the word apostle means emissary. It is, a, it is a term used by kingdoms to send out messengers that represent the king. And so he goes, I want you to go out and I want you to spread a message. And he tells all his people in his kingdom, this is our job. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, listen, here's what we've got to do. We need to be fruitful and multiply in the kingdom. And there's a lot of theology that's been done. I won't bore you with all the technical details, but many, many, many point that this is the mandate for the church. Where in creation, we were to be fruitful and multiply. That's how you spread the kingdom. How else do you spread the kingdom of Jesus Christ except through, through proclaiming a gospel that is to be believed and held on to? And so now we see something. What's interesting is our king has come to us. He's given us a promise and he's given us a command. The promise is you trust in me. I will bear your sins away. I will take your death away. I will put you in my kingdom. I will give you new life. Now go offer it freely to everybody. That's the command. Go multiply the kingdom. Are we, we following, tracking, okay? Important we're tracking. Because what happens next is interesting. There will be a reaction. For 400 years, Israel grows in Egypt's bondage. I find it interesting that for 400 years, the Christian church will grow from Jerusalem until the point that they literally will flip the Roman Empire over and make it Christian. It will spread from there all the way to China, down into deep Africa, and all the way into the north. Within 400 years, the gospel is spreading all over the known world at the time. Now it will slow down at the advent of Islam, and suddenly it will start to shut down and become a mainly European thing. And European Christianity, what we know as the West, will struggle for almost a thousand years wrestling with a church and politics problem. Is the church in charge of politics? Is politics in charge of the church? How do we match this? We know this as the medieval age. It is a, it is a massive untangling of all kinds of issues. And it's around the 1400s, through the 18-1900s, another movement occurs. It's called the gospel, we call it the Reformation. Suddenly the gospel gets loose again. It's not about your works and your Hail Marys and your yes ma'ams and all this stuff and following the empire. It's about following Jesus and his word. And suddenly a flame lights up so strong that the gospel within 400 years after the Reformation and early into the 1900s will actually cease to be a Western religion at all and be a global religion. There are more Christians today in the south and in non-western nations than there are in the west you are an official minority if you are a western christian because the rest of the nations are being proclaiming the gospel guys this is a global thing that has continued to spread we have this massive beautiful movement of god but it is not without constant counter offensives by the powers of darkness in this world notice it begins even for israel 400 years they're starting to multiply in a great way. And now there arose a new king. Verse 
take a look at verse six here. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Sorry, that's verse eight. And he said to his people, behold, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, pause here for a minute with me. Notice, first and foremost, that they've forgotten Joseph. Now, who is Joseph? Okay, there's two Josephs that are popular in the Bible. There's Christmas Joseph, that's the father of Jesus, and then there's Genesis Joseph. Now, Genesis Joseph, you'll know him if you've ever seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. That's not Jesus' dad. That is a different, that's Genesis Joseph, that, and he's not flamboyant. He was, a, he was the youngest son, before Benjamin, of Israel, and he is honored by his dad, Jacob almost like overdoes it, gives him this wonderful ruler's coat with many colors, kind of stripes on it, we think. And, and next thing you know, his brothers are jealous. They can't stand him. So what do they do? They take this little dreamer, as they called him. They shove him in a pit and sell their brother into slavery. Now, I know many of you have dreamed of doing that to your sibling, but they actually did that, okay? Took him, sent him to Egypt. While in Egypt, he's accused by his, his master's wife that he's attempting to rape her. They arrest him, throw him into prison where he is forgotten. He has, a vision, he has a vision or a dream, actually, which answers a conundrum for two men who were of the official court of Pharaoh that were locked away. One would die and one would be returned to his position. He tells them this and then is forgotten for two years until Pharaoh gets a dream. Pharaoh's dream, he doesn't know how to answer. He's got these weird cow problems, like thick fat cows and skinny cows and thick heads of grain and skinny grain, all this stuff, right? Straight out of children's ministry. And next thing you know, the, the, bread, the, the baker, I forget if it was the baker or the candlestick maker or whatever. And somebody, well, guys, I'm kidding. But the, the guy who's set free goes, I know a guy in jail who can answer your question. They grab Joseph, drag him out of jail. Joseph basically looks at the Pharaoh and says, you ain't God, but I know the God who can answer you and says, here's the answer. And Pharaoh goes, you're in charge of this restoration. We're going to have seven years of great abundance and then seven years of famine. And so we need to bring it all in, store it up, and use it sparingly and accordingly over the seven years. Well, Joseph does this. He saves Egypt and most of the known world from a massive seven-year famine. He ended up actually buying and purchasing the vast majority of Egypt's land, bringing them under the rule of the Pharaoh. Now the Pharaoh becomes the king of all of Egypt in this time period because of the work of Joseph. And I don't have time to get into the archaeology and all the fun stuff about the, the water lines and stuff that are actually named Joseph, which is strange, but we have this history that is now forgotten. Joseph who? I mean, their great hero, the hero of Egypt, forgotten. I don't even know what you're talking about. And we know one interesting thing about the Egyptians. They love to revise their history so that the Egyptians look better than they did over and over and over again. And you can just see this king going, it's not written on the wall. It ain't true. In other words, ain't in the internet, you know, whatever, however you want to put that. And so here is a man who's forgotten Joseph and then views Israel as a threat. In fact, we would say that he becomes the very head of the powers of darkness. He takes on the very issue of the demonic world of this rebellion against God. Because, and the reason I say that is he says these words, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they what? Multiply. There's our word again. He literally takes the blessing and says, Oh, no, 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 no. This blessing's a curse. 
And only the powers of darkness would look at God's blessings and declare it a curse and then go, I know what we need to do. We need to stop these people and end the multiplication right now. And here's how we're gonna do it. Make them really, really busy. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. And in other words, but they, their first plan of attack was this. They said, I got an idea. Why don't we make them so busy they don't have time to have sex and multiply? And that's exactly the idea. They're not going to want to multiply. They're too, too tired. Working them too hard. Now, how in the world does this work with us? I mean, what? what I mean, like, watch out. People are going to make you busy so you can't have sex. Is that, is that the application I'm supposed to give you? Okay, I just got to let that sit for a second so you guys understand. No, there's the answer, right? Actually, here's what's weird about it. This pattern should be awfully familiar. You see, does anybody know who Benjamin Rush is? A few of you might. A few of you might be a little bit of a historian. Benjamin Rush. My son would be like, I know Benjamin Rush. He loves Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush was one of our founding fathers of the United States. What's little known about Benjamin Rush is that he was a very devoted, devoted, devoted Christian, evangelical Christian. Followed the concepts. He fought for um, the removal of slavery, even at the founding of the nation. He went to Europe, got his chemistry degree, a medical degree, and by the time he was 17, opened a hospital here in the United States. Wrote a chemistry book that would t teach on chemistry to the universities and that he was a part of helping found, like, I think it was Harvard, but he was a pretty expert guy at, not political matters, but philosophical science and philosophical politics. He constantly was talking about these things. He actually invent, came up with the concept of the vaccine for smallpox and was the inventor of the first one who ran around giving out inoculations. Benjamin Rush so deeply was devoted to Jesus and to teaching people. Multiple others of those who signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution actually proclaimed he was the father of their thinking. And many devoted Christians were trained by him, but you didn't hear about him. We forgot. Now, maybe you've heard of Luther, but have you heard of Zwingli, Melanchthon? Men who helped codify concepts that moved us away from a singular centered view of Christianity and politics where the empire was central and instead the word of God became central and theology was leashed, unleashed and people began to understand the gospel as being saved by grace and not by a bunch of rules. And we hear of a Calvin, but we don't know of what he taught. We don't understand what he did. And we can go back and maybe, you've, maybe we've forgotten about Roger Bacon. And Roger Bacon, who sat in the midst of a monastery and worked hard at coming up with a way of asking questions so we could scientifically, as in his words, know what our reality was, and formed the scientific revolution along with several other men, one named Copernicus, Newton, and others, who gathered in and became the people who promoted the sciences as Christians. But maybe we forgot. Maybe we forgot about those Abbeys and these women who cared so deeply about the poor and the sick that they began to invite them into their homes. And the place that they invited them into became a place called a hospice, later called a hospital, based on the fact they were hospitable to the poor and the broken and the sick. When the average person ran out of town when a plague hit, the hospitals opened their homes and brought people in to care for them and love them at their own risk. 
And the entire world of nursing was born from the Christian vision of care. But maybe we forgot about the women who crept out in the middle of the night. And when the Romans would lay their babies out in exposure to kill them because they were a, a girl or because they actually had some kind of disability or deformity or something that they didn't care about, women would creep out of the middle of the night from their Christian faith to save these precious images of God, drag them into their homes, care for them as their own. And eventually they had so many children, they had open things called orphanages. An invention of the Christian mind. But maybe we forgot. Maybe we think history is dry and dull and unimportant, but according to the Israelites, history was pretty darn important. Because when they forgot who Joseph was, they quickly began to look at Joseph's people as a curse. I find it fascinating that when, although we have forgotten our Christian heritage and we've forgotten what has been brought us so much joys and the freedoms that we have, I could go on and on and on. There are tons of books on this stuff. That the number one thing I hear from students' mouths, my daughter at Santiago hears, is they just think we're a bunch of bigots and jerks. Spit on her Bible when she brings it out. Don't really care. Our friends will be sure to tell you you're on the wrong side of history, and I get that. We, it does look like that. But once we forget, it feels like a threat if the church begins to multiply because we don't stand in the same currents as the world. And there's a world rebellion that fights. There's an entire dark force Reality, that is wanting us to be self-autonomous, selfish, our way. And they fight this growing church. They fight against the kingdom of what God's called us to set out. I, I don't find it peculiar that the number one word asked of people, if you could define your life right now since 2019, and this giant thing went out to all the millennials and lower millennials and the Gen Z, the number one word that defined all of them is this word, tired. If I ask for a quick vote, anybody here feel like that word just made you more tired? I just have to mention it, doesn't it? It's like, whoa, tired. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The first move many of the forces of evil after they've gotten everybody to forget is they're just going to wear you out. Because the last thing they want you to do is multiply. And I don't mean sex. I mean preach the gospel. They want you tired. They want you so exhausted, so wound up, so anxious, you actually think the gospel is not going to do anything, but it is the way you multiply the kingdom of God. It is the way we get the mission that a living God who made us and developed us and gave us salvation and says, get out there and bring everybody else in. But that is what the dark forces cannot handle. That is what the enemy, the angelic hordes desire to stop who are demonic. They say, no way. Don't you dare. You know what? I got an idea. Let's just get them busy. But you can't stop the church. Just like you can't stop Israel. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they couldn't keep them tired. Yep, those Israelites, they were ready to, ready to multiply the family of God. And so I love this. Because we know the stories in church history that they try to wear us down. They've tried to do these things. But this, they call it the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more you oppress it, the more that it grows. This is how God works so often. And yet, don't ignore the fact that God gave you and I a promise that the church wouldn't be stopped. Je Jesus is talking to his disciples and Peter goes, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says this, 
And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Who will build his church? Say it. I will build my church. Jesus will build his church. Amen? The answer was Jesus. That was an easy one. You guys got that one? All right, good, good. Jesus, try it together. Um, look, Jesus says, I'm going to build the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That means this is an offense, not a defense. This is a situation where you are surrounding Hades and its gates. You are hemming it in so that now it has to literally defend itself. Guys, you're not losing. You're on offense. And Jesus says, it ain't going to be stopped. The gospel is not going to be stopped. I will build my church. And it's been going for 2,000 years. Now, what happens if we actually took this seriously and we believed Jesus could build the church and we got out there and as Christians around the world began to proclaim the gospel and it grew? Guess what? It's going to get worse, not better first. Did you know that? Because if we're going to lean on the promises of God, the promises of God seem to indicate that, hey, if you, if you trust me and walk with me, it kind of gets harder. Notice what goes on. So it multiplies, verse 13, we pick up. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick. That's another interesting uh, link. If you didn't think it's like, oh, the dark forces, Greg's making this up. No, no, this links back to Babel. And Babel is where they invented the mortar and the bricks. And it's a picture of the dark forces trying to train humanity and humanity working together to try to become God and take heaven by force. So they're just playing the same games as they begin to move on. This is the dark forces working in Egypt. And so, and all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them as slaves. Now, then the king of Israel said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, and I love that. I can never read this the same again since I talked with Tim at lunch last week. And he's like, I loved this story because these two names were the closest I could, as a pastor's kid, I could ever get to cussing. Shipra and Pua. So I just can't unhear that. So just thought I'd share that with you. Now you can't either. So, but it's important. And I play on the names for a minute on purpose. These are the only two names given to you at the beginning here. Moses won't even name his parents. It's how important these two people will be. Take a peek. When the author does that, he's trying to get your attention. So he, we have these two women, Shipra and the other Pua, and they were told, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, really interesting stuff in here, whether it's a birth stool or not. We do know from archaeology and a lot of our training, the, the, the Egyptians knew a lot about babies in the womb. And they had all kinds of ways to abort babies. And in essence, they were telling the midwives, you go in there, when you determine by your magic wheel or whatever it is that you have that this is a boy, make it an abortion. Now, get rid of these kids. And people always wonder, why has the church historically always been against abortion? I mean, from the beginning, the Israelites have been all the way up through the whole history of the church. It begins here because it was used as a way of, of, of absolute genocide against the people. And here is these midwives being told, listen, by the force of the government, you are going to do this. And now they're in a predicament. And we don't know if Shipra and Pua were the only two midwives. We just know they're the two named. I mean, did they have like midwife groups where they gather together to talk and trade crafts? They're like, oh my gosh, did you hear what they're doing? Well, I'm going to do it. I mean, I don't want to lose my life. 
I, I can't do that. What are you talking about? It's like, were they having arguments in you know, the midwife hangout time? I don't know. This is a serious situation. Some of you have felt the same thing. You see, what happens is the powers of darkness will move quickly. If they can't wear you out and they can't exhaust you, they will quickly pull cultural pressure upon you and they'll make it very difficult. Some of you nurses are having, and I just talked to somebody earlier, who is having to sit in for her training on euthanasia to watch people kill themselves at the end of their lives. Now, there's debates and I get that, but look, Christianity has been classically... And I believe the scripture is against suicides. Now, same thing. Some poor nurses in New York are being made to go in and help at operations of abortions, help in transgender surgery operations that their, their beliefs hold against. Teachers, you're told in many cases, you can't even talk about Jesus in your classroom. But, you know, you can talk about all kinds of other stuff that you're like, what, what is going on? Look, the cultural pressure is there. And I don't believe the cultural pressure is about politics. I believe the cultural pressure is created to make you shut up about the gospel. Because if you can feel uncomfortable about the gospel, the church is not going to multiply. So much so an entire generation of millennials, some of which you are, have grown up believing it's wrong to evangelize. Well over, I believe it's well over 50%. Actually believes it's immoral to try to tell somebody and change their viewpoint. Now that's the case, they've really begun to work a great job. And I believe the problem is that many of us back off because if they can't make you be quiet from being tired, they'll make you scared. And this is what begins to happen. But it's, it's scary. Cultural pressure stinks. I feel it. I feel it while I'm preaching. I feel it from every side. I'm like, okay, I have to navigate this sermon so carefully because of what happened this weekend, you know, on Friday with all the conversations. There's a lot that's sitting in heads and a lot that's frustrated and we're all either coming in with an ax to grind or something. You know, this is a dangerous culture to, to preach in, just to be honest. But I want you to hear me for a minute. We are going to preach the gospel and we need to remember this pressure is about evangelism to get you to be quiet. You were promised it. Jesus put it this way, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And the point here is that Jesus is very clear. If we think that you're going to get out of junk because by being quiet, no, you're just falling in to the game plan of the enemy. We are called to preach the gospel. That's how you multiply the kingdom. That's how you see people come in. This is how we get, but I get it. Man, it's dark times. It's difficult times. If I step up, he promises persecution. That's horrible. What do I do with that? What do we do? Well, I want to tell you, take a cue from the midwives. They felt the pressure. They knew the danger. Verse 17 continues our story. But the midwives feared God. Wait, what? But the midwives did what? The midwives feared. Say it again with me. The midwives feared. The midwives feared God. Are you sure there's not a V at the end of that thing? No, they didn't fear Gov. They feared God. And we can have fear of Gov on all sides. There is fear of government. It's a distraction, my friends. 
Our calling is to fear God. Our calling is to multiply the kingdom of God. The only way you multiply the kingdom of God on this side of Jesus is to preach the gospel of Jesus, that he loves people, that he's died on the cross to bear their sins, that he rose from the dead to give them life, to call them into his kingdom, to commit fealty to him, say, I am after you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to run after him for the sake of the kingdom, bringing everybody else we possibly can. It's not about gov. Now, I think there's a place to fight about gov. Just need to clarify, before you think I'm saying one thing that I'm not. But when it comes to our core values as the church, take a cue from the midwives who feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, um, because the Hebrew women, they're like, not like the Egyptian women. Man, they just, they're vigorous. They just give birth and here come the baby. We show up, it's all done. That's literally what they're saying. Like, we didn't get a chance to check and commit the abortion. They just already had the baby. Now, we don't know if they're telling the truth or not. But I guarantee you they were doing something to keep themselves safe. They determined, we are not going to do this. Now, were they getting pressure from other midwives going, you better do this. You know, I'm going to tell you what they said to do. It's like, no, 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 no. Here's what we got to do. We'll just show up late. Maybe. Or maybe there's just like, look, when he asks us, we're just going to lie. You go, that's horrible. They lied. Well, time out for a minute. If, if you were hiding Jewish people in your home, the Nazis came and knocked on your door. And they said, do you have Jewish people in your home? And they answered the question. People are always like, oh man, do I, do I like, you already broke the law. You're hiding Jewish people. You say, no. Because you value those made in the image of God more than those who would destroy the image of God. Okay, so let's just clarify that for a minute. You want to get into ethics conversation about lying and all that stuff later? That's fun. We'll do that. But right now, what I want to do is I want to fixate on something greater in this text. And it's not, the, it's, not their stand, it's not their statement here. What's greater in this text is the fact that we need to take a cue from these Hebrew women. And that cue is, guys, in a culture that where we can't see, when, when we can't see in the dark, we need moral courage to trust God's promises. We need to become a people who trust God's promises so greatly because he is the one who has given us what we need. Now, God dealt with the midwives. The people multiplied. They grew very strong. That was the part I skipped. But guys, we need some cultural courage because right now to preach the gospel, the threat is you will either lose a loved one or you will lose a love of a way of life. It's getting close to you will lose your life, but we're not there yet. It's there for North Korea. It's there for Afghanistan. It's there for Christians in Uganda and Nigeria and parts of Sudan. It's definitely there for Christians in India. It's there for Christians in, in Mexico. It is there for Christians, our brothers and sisters all over the world. Yes, it is not just a way of life that they would lose, not just someone they would lose, but it is their own life that they would lose. And this is what the enemy wants to do. They want to threaten you with your life and your loved ones and everything that you love in order to distract you from doing what God's called us to do, which is to preach the gospel. Our moral courage begins with having moral courage to preach the gospel. If we're not going to have moral courage to preach the gospel, we're not going to have moral courage for anything else. I believe if we have moral courage to preach the gospel. We're going to share the gospel. The darkness can't win. You want to change something, change a human heart with Jesus Christ. 
You want to watch somebody move and change their mindset, watch Jesus Christ take over and transform their heart. Now, I believe this is the first step. I believe all of this is an attempt to keep us from evangelizing. It's an attempt to cause us to get locked into other things before the gospel. Hear my language carefully. Paul had to put lots of things that he cared about aside to reach in. Now, I'm not talking about sin. Notice, notice what Paul says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew. That means he dressed appropriately, he took the rites, he even went and, and did a sacrifice at the temple. Why? That I, in order to win Jews. Evangelism was number one in his mind. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. All right? How about those outside of the law? Well, I became as one outside the law. Now, not being outside of the law of God, not sinning, but under the law of Christ, out of love of God and love of my neighbor, that I might win those outside of the law. Oh, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. My friend, let me ask a few pointed questions to myself and to you guys at the same time. Greg, congregation, are we putting unnecessary things in front of the gospel so they're offended by those and not the gospel? If not wearing a mask stops someone from hearing the gospel, would you wear one? If someone not getting the vaccine threatens you and you want to push it on them, would you be willing to drop it off and not deal with it if that push meant they wouldn't hear, you, hear the gospel from you? If someone supported a candidate or a viewpoint you didn't, would you set it aside for the sake of the gospel with that person? If we have a situation where the gospel is needed clearly, will we let the gospel be the offense? Paul says, that's all I want is the offense. I'll change the way I dress. I want to reach people for Jesus. Now, this is hard. Because what I'm really asking you to do is sit out from here and go get rejected today, please. But not for, not for a political position. Uh, but for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Greg, you're like slamming politics. Hold on. No, 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 no. I have my political positions. And we can talk about those when I'm off the stage. When I'm on the stage, I stand here as an emissary of Jesus Christ to tell you there's one thing the church is called to do and what we are called to do is preach the gospel. And that means if we get that first, I believe you'll change lives and the other stuff will begin to flow. I do believe that politics is a part of the church. In fact, we need wisdom for the sake of the gospel. Deep wisdom when we apply these kinds of things. These women needed wisdom. They didn't know what to do. You know what they had to do? They had to go, uh, what do I do? I know. Show up late. I know. We'll lie. Whatever it was for them, they needed wisdom in how to do that. Jesus tells you and me, we need wisdom. We need wisdom for the sake of the gospel. When it comes to wisdom, he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of, in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Unfortunately, I feel like there's been a shift that oftentimes we are wicked as serpents and dumb as doves. 
And maybe you've met some people like that. I'm praying, I don't, I don't know if that's here or not. My point is simply this, I don't want to be that. And I've seen it myself. I've been more wicked as a serpent and dumb as a dove. And I want to be more innocent. I don't need to learn more things about evil. What I need to learn is how to be wise with the gospel to get it to where I need to go. How to drop the right thing and pick up the right thing. How to push the right issue and at the right time. Oh, there are issues to push. We need to do that because the bottom line is, yes, there are going to be attempts to stop you. Teachers, you're told you can't preach the gospel. You can't talk about God at school. I think you need to get crafty. I really do. Our schools need the gospel. My daughter talks about what she runs into on the average day at Santiago High School. My friends, the church needs to get into the schools. And it doesn't help if you're a school teacher and, yeah, you're afraid, I might lose my job. Get crafty. Dave Vaughn, who used to be, a, a, um, used to be an elder here at our church, he used to bring the gospel in all the time. He just called it light and dark. Got kids so curious, he would tell them about Jesus when they came after school because they wanted to know more. He was a history teacher. Your language arts teacher, bring in interesting readings that don't destroy the church. Do you realize, stop and think about the, I'm going to go on a, a little bit of a rant here for one second. You realize the only sermon you get from a guy named Jonathan Edwards in history is called Sermon in the Hands of an Angry God. Anybody read that one? You're told the Puritans were these stuffy, fun, these stuffy jerks who didn't like anybody else. The Puritans didn't wear black and white. They wore vibrant clothing. They believed in living for the, for the hope of their vocation to glorify God. Yes, they had a religious perspective that outlawed other religions, but so did most people at that time period. You've heard, you ever read The Scarlet Letter? Nathaniel Hawthorne hated the church. He wrote it on purpose as a polemic against the church, and it's have to reading at school. Why? Why is the only sermon you read by what is considered one of the America's most eminent philosophers, Jonathan Edwards, is the one that sounds the worst? You don't think people are trying to set up something? You're like, you're a conspiracy theorist from the stage, Greg. No, I know, it sounds weird. I just, being a Christian who grew, who grew out, not being a Christian in high school, but growing out of that and going, looking back and now being a student in history, I go, whoa, crazy. You don't have the history that's going on there. We forgot Joseph. And now, I'm telling you, teachers, this is something worthy of being fired over. Our world needs Jesus. You can do it crafty. Nurses, you can be crafty. Trade shifts. Get religious exemptions. Do what you need to do. But there are some cases we need to step up and say, I can't do that. And we as a church need to be ready to support each other when that happens. When there is no way that we can be obe- that we can, oh, when there's no other way, obedience to God is the number one thing with moral courage that must be done. And that always, by the way, that doesn't apply to all political issues, but it always applies to the gospel. That verse we love to say, we must obey God rather than men. Do you know what the command was? The command was, do not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. 
This always applies when it comes to the gospel. You cannot be told not to preach Jesus. This is your calling. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is what a church is. It is a missions organization that spreads the gospel of Jesus Christ, of God's love and acceptance, his work on the cross, that all people broken of all kinds, sexually broken, physically broken, mentally broken, those who are guilty of absolute worst kinds of crimes, those who are thieves, con artists, those who are child molesters, God wants to bring them all into the kingdom of God because we need to be a people who preach a gospel indiscriminately. My friends, everyone deserves the chance to hear the gospel of Jesus. He bore their sins on the cross. Let's not waste that great sacrifice. Amen? Just because we're scared, just because we might lose something, just because there's something wrong. Remember, the midwives feared God and they blessed them. I'm not saying we're going to get blessed because we go out there and we preach the gospel, but I'm going to tell you every stance you take for God that is honorable and right according to the scriptures, especially every time you preach the gospel and they reject you, they reject Christ. When they accept it, man, we praise God. But yeah, God will bless you, but not, maybe not on earth. You promised persecution, folks. That doesn't sound like a blessing to me, does it to you? But he promises reward in eternity. The midwives feared God and they gave, he gave them families. And we have this opportunity to see that God will indeed stand with those of us who will stand for him because we have a promise, my friends. We have a promise that will produce moral courage. A promise that should get you out the door every single day, ready to bring a message of hope and freedom to everyone you know. And it's not a message of condemnation. That's dealt with. God already dealt with our sins. Now it's a message of freedom. Let's preach the grace of Christ and invite everyone in. Because here's the thing. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. This is Jesus speaking as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Anybody want Jesus to come back anytime soon? Yes. Please, Lord, come. Then we need to get the message to every single person we possibly can. So until it reaches all the nations, until this message is proclaimed everywhere we possibly can, guys, then Christ will return. That's why we endorse our missionaries. That's why we get our tails out the door. This isn't just about the politics. It's gospel evangelism first. Politics will follow in the train because we want to see people know Jesus. You want to see California changed? Preach the gospel. You want to see the United States have revival? Preach the gospel. You want to see the world begin to understand what is going on? Let's preach a message of Jesus Christ. Their enemies will attack. That's just a given. Let's be on the offense, done with the defense, amen? Yes, there will be times where we have to stand, I'll finish up with this. There will be moments in which you and I must and will, because this is the question everybody's on everybody's on, when do we, when, when do we push back? There will be times of civil disobedience. It's just, it's just part of the Christian order. Now, Calvin, who actually wrote about this in his institutes, put it this way. The general attitude of a Christian is one of obedient submission to their government, even if it's unjust and cruel. Check Romans 13, 1 through 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. However, he goes on, when the ruler requires us to sin against God or forbids something that God commands, we must refuse. Let me repeat that. Requires us to sin. You've got to know it's sin. Forbids us that we, something God commands that we ought to do, like preach the gospel, pray. We say, thank you, but no thank you. My friends, this is something we need to dig into more deeply. But when it comes to the story of Exodus, 
and the multiplication of God's kingdom, it falls on evangelism. Spread the kingdom of God. It is the way that his kingdom develops and transforms. Now, Greg, does that mean we shouldn't be political? Of course we're going to be political. You want to talk to me about my politics? I'll tell you outside later. After my mic is off and we can have a conversation. But up here, from this word, I challenge you. Preach the gospel. And those of you who are in here today, I want you to hear something. I, I, I'm, I'm not here to ask you if you're blue, red, purple. I'm not here to see if you're black, white, brown. We sing a song and often when we're kids. Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Our Lord God has invited all of you, if you're in the hearing of this message today, to enter into his kingdom, to be forgiven of your sins, to renounce the powers of darkness that control so much of our thinking, the fear of death, habitual addictions, and everything else to follow after him. He calls you to his allegiance and invites you in, freely willing not just to make you a subject or a servant, but to make you a son or a daughter of Christ, of, of God, a brother of Christ, owned by God, empowered by the Spirit of God, so that you can live for the Creator, to be an agent of the greatest good that has ever lived on the planet. And it's an invitation you have to receive. This is not a God who calls you to seven steps in order to be right with him. He is not a God who calls you to get yourself cleaned up, stop that bad habit, erase those sins, and make yourself perfect before he receives you. No, he calls you right now, as you are, where you are, to receive his grace and mercy. You're all invited. You're all invited so that in the day when he returns, you stand rejoicing instead of fearing a judgment. Because Jesus gave you a gift that all you have to do is receive. I want to invite you to receive that. To change your allegiance from maybe yourself, maybe some other God, some other religion, to the allegiance of Jesus, who has shown himself faithful by dying for your sins, victorious over the grave, destroying the enemy, and giving you the chance of the kingdom and life. If you want to receive that today, I want to give you a chance to do so right now. Would you bow your heads with me? First and foremost, you can just write where you're at. Talk to God who can hear you. He hears your mind. He knows your thoughts. He knows all that you've done. Just admit, say, God in heaven, I know that I have sinned. I've stood in rebellion against you. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I trust that on the cross, you've taken them away. I renounce my rebellion and I call myself to allegiance to you. I will follow you, Jesus. I trust that you've given me a new life. Would you now lead me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that or made that allegiance, we're gonna ask you to do something. We have some prayer team members around and ask you to make a pledge of allegiance in a different way, not stand up and say, I pledge allegiance. I'm asking you to make a pledge of allegiance by going back and connecting with one of our prayer team. This is a beginning point. We want to help you begin to really walk with, with the God, your creator, through Jesus Christ. And um, the way we would do that is first by knowing you made that decision. 
We want to celebrate with you and connect with you. So meet one of them back there. They'd love to meet with you. Otherwise, may God bless you guys this week. May he empower you, give you options, options upon options of where to share the gospel. And I pray that we would be courageous and we'd have that moral courage. Amen? Amen. Guys, have a great week. Gina, I'm going to turn it over to you. Let them know what's going on. Yeah, thanks. Hey, so today um, up here we celebrated Stephanie. We are going to be having a lunch um, outside just a time to share with her personally, just some of your thoughts. Thank her for her time here. So please join us if you want to. Um, if you are online, uh, you could get on our app and check out some things coming up. Or if you're here today, you can go out to Connection Central. We have our women's Bible study starting this week. We have our marriage tune-up starting this week. So I think everybody would want to work on their marriage, even if it's great to be even better. So you could still sign up for that. And our fall festival is starting, so you could sign up, start signing up for the trunk and treat um, for that on the courtyard as well. But let me leave you with this. Um, I pray that God's word this morning just touched your heart. I pray that Greg's voice or the reminder of what God spoke to you this morning um, throughout the week that you remember those things. This is a time for us to not live in fear but to be bold and courageous. And so may we go out and preach the gospel to those people in our lives, in our everyday lives, in our circle, in our neighborhood, that they may know him. So with that, go in peace. Join us for lunch. Have a wonderful week.